welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make. With your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. If you'd like to learn more about the makers we interview on Why Make, please go to our website, why-make.com. And please help support the Why Make podcast on our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash why make podcast or the Patreon link on our website. Welcome to Why Make in 2022. This episode is a special edition of sorts where we actually talk about the process of making instead of getting all existential like we usually do. And although this is definitely not a tool talk, it is a more of a how to make than a why make this time around. On episode 39 of Why Make, we talk with Karen Ernst, a maker and educator who's currently a professor in the art department at Edinburgh University of Pennsylvania, where she teaches woodworking and furniture design. Originally from East Aurora, New York, Karen holds a BA in studio art from SUNY Geneseo and an MFA in furniture design from the Rhode Island School of Design. We talk with Karen about her process of making one of her colorful and uniquely shaped woodworking objects and follow her down a meandering path of creativity, from the germination of an idea, usually in her sketchbook, all the way to the final evaluation of her finished pieces. Karen also talks to us about the intoxication of creating things people can use, her addiction to making, and how it all began for her with an eye-opening field trip she took to see Wendell Castle Studio in Scottsville, New York. So join us as we set off on a journey through one maker's mind and their process of making. We'd like to welcome Karen Ernst to a a unique version of Why Make, where we're going to we're going to talk about your background, Karen, but we're also going to talk about the germination of an idea. We're going to sort of walk through not one specific project, but a bunch of projects, and sort of talk about the process of how you go from A to B, and you know the thought process and and the development of an idea. But it, uh, it wouldn't be a why make podcast if we didn't ask the why make question. The why make question is, what was your first memory of making something? Well, um, <laughs> I guess I think, uh, you know, I, I don't come from a family that is particularly artistic. Um, though now that my parents looking at the, you know, my parents are still alive and healthy and everything. And I see them, see them often, but um my parents, neither one are artists, but my dad is a, is a, like a real extreme train enthusiast. And I grew up having a, um, elaborate train set in our basement, <laughs> which was, you know, he would go like, it was like a sculpture. He would build like these landscapes and assemble these little models. And it was like his whole little universe that he would, um, kind of put together. So that, that took over a big part of our basement, um, as a child growing up. And then I, I think, uh, he sold it all off when we moved to a different house and now that he and my mother are, live alone in their house, he's taken over the basement again. And I, every time we go there, there's like a new a new thing added to it. So I think I you know I was around somebody who liked to build things, someone who was creative. Um, I don't think he would describe himself that way at all. But you know, I look at the stuff, the train set that he's constructed now, and it's there's lots of grandkids, and they just are like, wow, this is the coolest thing ever. It's like this little micro universe. Anyway. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think he was always sort of building stuff and fixing things. Um, but I don't think he would, I don't think he had the attention span to kind of get into real fine craftsmanship as far as the things that he built around our house. But, um, I think I always liked, you know, drawing and coloring and was always into art, but really hadn't held any real tools or power tools until I got to college, high school. I was pretty into photography, a little bit of ceramics, um, you know, liked making stuff. And then I think, but I never thought, oh, art could be like a real, a real career path for me. I think I thought, oh, I need to be a doctor or or something real, you know, like Mm -hmm. artists can't, that's not a real career. I don't know where I got that idea from, but it um, wasn't something that occurred to me as a possible career path, even though all signs were pointing in that direction. Like I, in high school, hung out in the art room any chance I could. Me and my group of friends would go there to eat lunch rather than go to the cafeteria. And um, I should have seen that, I suppose, earlier on. So yeah, I guess um, what's the real first thing I made? Um, I guess if you think of college, like my wood one class, I think of that as 
the first time I really had used power tools, even like a drill. I don't think I'd ever even used a cordless drill. So I really try to remember that now as, as an educator, what it felt like to make something for the first time and sort of the fear and excitement and, and all that that happens with that process. So um, my first table that I made in my wood one class, I still have, it's actually in my office at school, which I probably should bring it home. But, um, you know, to make something that was functional or useful and incorporated design and art, I mean, that was something new. And I think it was like this switch had been flipped. Like I, I started out in college as a biology major, like pre-med thinking, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I was, you know, good at science and high school did well. And then, um, but just got to, I guess, organic, organic chemistry was the straw that broke the camel's back for me that I just um, remember walking out in the middle of a test thinking like, I can't do this. I don't know this stuff. I'm not interested in it. And that was at the same time that I was taking wood one just for fun, you know, because that couldn't be a real career path. And then I was like, okay, why am I doing this thing I don't like? Why don't I do what I really like? And yeah, so that that sort of was the spark, I suppose, that that sort of lit the fire. And here I am 25 years later. <laughs> so That's fascinating because I actually started my career in biology too, thinking actually I was going to be a marine biologist because I'd grown up going to marine biology stations. And organic chemistry is, again, the straw that broke the camel's back. <laughs> yep. I remember, you know, freshman chem was easy. Organic chem just blew my mind. I said, I've got to memorize all of this. This is not happening. <laughs> See, I, I realized all that in high school that, nope, science isn't for me. So I tried journalism and then decided journalism isn't for me. I want to make stuff. But it happened. It happened in my early 20s as well. I'm just like, um, yeah, there's something else knocking on the door saying, pay attention to me, pay attention to me. I didn't start in the arts. I started building, I started making maps. That was my first transition into sort of functional art was making maps. And I did that in college. And then I started, you know, making tables for myself. Actually, the first piece I made was a drafting table to make maps on. <laughs> but that transition for me was functional objects into art. And I never really thought of furniture making as art until I was probably 15 years into my career. I thought of myself as purely somebody making functional objects. And, and what was your perspective of that at the beginning as you delved into furniture? Uh, well, I think uh, my professor in college was a woman named Jo Stone who had... Um, she had gone through the studio furniture route. She went to school in Murray, Kentucky and studied with Paul Sasso. And um, I think she went, she started that a little bit later in life because she was probably in her mid forties. So about my age when I had her as a teacher. So she went to Murray state and then she went on to graduate school at San Diego state and studied with Wendy Mariama. So she brought all of that info with her. Um, so I think of the work that she was showing to us in class, you know, it was a lot of Paul Sasso's work and, you know, people like Jenna Goldberg and Wendy Mariama, of course, and um, probably Christina Madsen, uh, Gail Friedel, you know, all of these kind of women who are big, big names in the field. This is in the, I guess, the mid 90s when studio furniture was still such a booming, booming thing and was selling in galleries and things like that. So I think we all it was part of the art department. So it always had sort of this art uh lean to it. I mean, but at the same time, she was teaching us how to do things the right way, like using the right joinery and understanding wood movement. And, mm -hmm. um, but it, at the same time had this expectation of some kind of content, you know, not, not necessarily like a narrative, but some, some concept that was driving our ideas, which I struggled with at first. I was like, what are we like, this idea of a critique and the conversations that happened in critiques. I was like, what is this? It just sounded like kind of a lot of BS to me I think, in the beginning until I understood like, oh, this is how we make our work better or how we talk about how the object is working and how it's not working. And, you know, just that, that difficulty in learning how to critique. I mean, I, I find it with my students too now, what the vocabulary is that you use, what is the language and, and how do you articulate what it is that you're seeing in the piece that's working or not working. So yeah, so I think like, you know, my furniture classes in college were sort of this, I was, you know, sort of intoxicated, I guess, by the idea of making things that people could use. And I remember sort of going, having this sort of ideal, I, or I don't know, idealized view of the world, like, I'm going to make everything I use, I'm going to make all my furniture, and I was taking weaving classes. So I'm like, I'm going to weave blankets, and I'm going to learn how to sew and like, 
I never took ceramics in college. I did ran out of time for that, but I did take metals too. And just this idea of, you know, taking raw materials and having an idea and just making the thing that was in your head, like a real object was, I don't know. And all, and especially if it was something that was useful, that seemed like practical, you know, as opposed to being a painter or something like that, where like, you know, you can look at a painting, but you can't, you can't like use it. It doesn't improve or, you know, it does improve your life, I guess. So I don't know. These are things that I've, I've come to, to think about more as I've gotten older. But anyway, in my college, you know, 20 year old mindset, learning woodworking and furniture making seemed like a, an idea or a pathway that I could sell my parents on, <laughs> you know, as like, these are hands on like practical real world skills and have the art part of it, the fun part of it, you know, still be included. Interesting that your teacher's influences were two people that are pretty far out there on the margins of the, I, I guess, was it called artiture? Were they still using the term artiture at that point? Art furniture? Or had we, had we transitioned into the word studio furniture? Two terms who I still don't really actually know what they mean. Um, but, you know, Paul Sasso and, and Wendy Murayama are definitely two people whose, I would say that the, the concept behind the pieces is, is or more important than the function of the piece. Yet you were pretty grounded in function. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I, um, going back a bit further, I mean, I had taken one, well, one wood class. I went to Geneseo, one of the SUNY schools in Western New York. And, um, I mean, I chose to go there, I guess, cause it was about an hour from home. I, I had spent a year abroad as an exchange student in Germany right after high school. And at that time I was like, I want to get as far away from home as possible. I'm going to have adventures. I'm going to see the world. And you know, which I, I did have a pretty adventurous year overseas. And then the idea of going to school an hour from home seemed kind of appealing, but, but the, anyway, my, my hometown where I grew up was East Aurora, New York. That's where my parents still live. So I was surrounded by the arts and crafts movement. That was a big, where the Roycroft uh, artist guild happened in the early 1900s. So there's that font, like the Dard Hunter font is everywhere in East Aurora. When I go home, it's like everything from like the lettering on the schools to like any sign that's related to the town in any way, like everyone has embraced this, this arts and crafts style stuff. So anyway, so I took one class in college. And then that summer, I was like, I'm really into this, I want to learn more. And so I went to, uh, um, there was a, a couple of guys who had a shop in East Aurora, they were part of, they were Roycroft artisans, I guess, like you have to pass this, this test and be sort of elected into this, this artist guild so that you can put the Roycroft symbol on your work. Um, so these were two Roycroft master craftsmen, I guess they were called. And so I just said, Hey, can I kind of hang out in your shop for the summer? And they were like, uh, okay. And then, you know, they had me, I would go like one or two days a week. I wasn't paid or anything. I would literally just hang around and like sweep up or like put some stain on something or like sand something, but just being there, you know, you absorb so much information and it was like different information than what I'd gotten in college. So I don't know. It just made me pretty excited that now looking back, I'm like, man, they were very generous to allow me to, to come into their shop like that and kind of, you know, disrupt their day and their schedule and just to, to teach me. And I, but I think a lot of woodworkers are like that where they're excited when someone else is excited, they're excited to share the information that they have and to teach and to sort of spread the word, I guess you could say. So, yep. So that teacher, uh, Joe Stone, I remember I was in wood too, and she was like, Hey, we're going on a field trip. And so she had made arrangements for us to go up to his studio. <clears throat> he personally gave us a tour of his studio, which was at the time I was sort of like, oh, I don't know who this guy is, you know, but once I was in his studio, I was like, oh yeah, he's kind of like amazing. And it's it sort of like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. It's like this, me and one room sort of goes into the next and into the next. And there's this, these like huge machines and partially finished, amazing objects everywhere you look like it's sort of sensory overload. I don't know if either of you have ever been, ever had the chance to go to his studio, but it was, it was amazing. And I just remember not, I had no idea like who he was, <laughs> you know, how, like how big of a deal he was. And I remember asking him a question, like, how did you get all these machines? Like just the idea of um, at that time, sort of setting up a shop and how expensive it would be and the logistics involved. I like, couldn't even, didn't even know where to start, you know, and then going to someone like Wendell Castle, who's, you know, had, at that point had probably been doing it for 40 years. Of course, he had acquired a lot of stuff gradually along the way. And um, anyway, yeah, now I'm like, oh, my God, did I ask that question of him? Because 
<laughs> what an interesting perspective, though, to be able to go to his shop without knowing really what he is and what he did. Yeah, that's kind of a neat way to approach it. Um, yeah, and I know, and I know that wasn't even your intention. It's just like that's where you ended up. I was, but it's like, and, how, you know, how, like... How, but how cool to have to all of a sudden your eyes open up to that, you yeah. know, and without even knowing that it's going to have this transitional influence to you. Totally. And I, and I think it's pretty amazing someone at his level that he was still willing to take time out of his day to just show around a bunch of college students. Maybe, maybe it was interesting to him to sort of hear our perspective on things or see what our reaction was. I don't know if that's a way to sort of keep your ideas fresh to interact with young people, but um, that seems like sort of his thing. Cause years later I took my own students and he gave us tours like, you know, four or five times I brought students up there to his studio from where I teach now. You do run into that and it's just people are humble because that's they came from where you're coming from. You know, being curious and not knowing anything about what you're getting into. <laughs> yeah. They, and actually another that's another very interesting parallel with me because I just before I even started woodworking, I found Wendell Castle's book of wood lamination in the library at the university. And I was just killing time. I mean, I was studying, I was bored. Uh, I was probably studying for an organic, organic chemistry test, and and I just <laughs> you were literally, for... <laughs> yeah, I was studying. I was literally at total random. I pulled Wendell Castle's book of wood lamination off the shelves in the agriculture and engineering library at West Virginia University. I mean, literally, I could have pulled a book on making French bread off it probably just as easily, and that really lit a fire under me because I was like wow, this is amazing. I had no idea you could do this with wood. And I'd never heard of Wendell Castle. And, and you know, when he died a couple years ago, it was a, it was a really melancholy moment. Even though he lived a long, wonderful life, it was like, wow, this was my first experience of woodworking. And when he gave the keynote speech at um, the Furniture Society conference in Savannah many years ago, it was, it was, it was all, all I'll always remember what he said, you know, about being creative, you know, I'm sure somebody else said it. It's not unique, but he said, you know, if you keep on hitting the bullseye with all of your ideas, if you're throwing the darts at the target and you keep on hitting the bullseye, you need to keep on walking further back. You keep on, you need to keep trying harder. Um, if you think all of your ideas are successful, then you need to make the challenges more difficult. And that was pretty inspiring. I've got that poster uh-huh. right in right in front of me <laughs> over my monitor. <laughs> oh, you do so you can see. Yeah, I have that poster yeah. at school. I'm trying to remember. There's one about like a the dog, it. the dog who doesn't leave the porch will find no bones or something like that. Isn't that one of oh, them? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's number five. The dog that stays on the porch will find no bones. Yes. I got that after I played one of his pianos. Oh and wow. D- down in a collection in Florida. It was oh yeah. That's that's a whole long other story, but yeah, I mean it's so it just goes back to to how he's he's more real than a lot of other makers out there as far as i don't know i find his stuff really honest yeah you know, i mean he's he definitely i mean i think you know i think he talks about how uh, yeah i've heard him speak a couple of times about how everything he makes is functional that he doesn't make anything that's purely sculptural. Like, I mean, he'll, it's like he'll make a sculpture and like put a clock in it and then it's functional, you know, mm-hmm. or, or make some sculpture and it has a little flat surface. So it's a table, you know? So I, I think it's, <laughs> but I think he came from a background where he didn't have any traditional, you know, furniture training, you know, he was coming at it from an art perspective. And I think maybe that allowed him to think outside the box the way that, that he does. But in my PowerPoint, there's some images of, of like his shelves of all the models that he made. And oh my gosh, like, it seems like there was just one idea after the, after another that he could have gone on for another hundred years making stuff and, or producing ideas. I'm looking at that too. I mean, it just looks like almost like a sketchbook on a wall, Mm -hmm. but it's all real in 3d. It's like, yeah, that's just wild. And just that he yeah. would let us like come into a studio. I mean, and he didn't care if we took pictures or anything. I guess he probably knew like, you know, they, they could try to, to imitate my work, but <laughs> it won't be quite right. That won't be the same. <laughs> but I think just seeing someone who, you know, someone at his level that had 
so many ideas and so many pieces that had had, had a lot of time invested in them. And some of them were just like covered in dust because he had abandoned it for whatever reason to just, the, I guess, back to our theme of talking about the germination of an idea like that sometimes you reach a point where you're like, you know, I'm not sure if this is going to work. So I might just step away from it for a while and focus on something that I'm feel better about or, or who knows. But so speaking of the germination of an idea, um, where do your ideas start? Where, what is the what is that first step in the process for you? Um, well, I think I, you know, where I'm at in my career now, I, I'm like I'm a mother of three kids. I teach full time at a university. I um, so my time is is sort of limited. And I think in the last you know ten years or so, I've realized like okay, I, what I can do at a bare minimum if I'm not able to get in the studio is to try to sketch. So if I go to a swim meet or go to a soccer game or drive in the car or whatever, I try to bring along my little bag of pens and my, um, my sketchbook and just look at things like shapes and things that we're passing in the car. Or if we're traveling that I see off the highway or, um, just sort of as a record of, I don't know, just things that, that my eye is drawn to. It's like, I guess that's where it starts. And then also, uh, you know, spending time in nature is a big priority for me. Um, you know, in my early 20s or right after college, I went out, took a summer and went out west. I worked at Rocky Mountain National Park. Um, this is like in the early days of the Internet. I remember there was a website called CoolJobs.com, which is I don't know if it still exists. I kind of wonder if it does. But um, I think I remember that. Yeah. You could like look up just, you know, when you're a college kid and you're looking to do something cool for the summer, like you know, I think those experiences give you, give you things to make your work about. So I, you know, with my students now, a lot of them are so anxious to go get a job and I'm like, just go like travel, see stuff, like have experiences that's going to make your artwork better. So, so yeah, so I guess I look to, you know, try to record things in sketches. And I think like a lot of artists, sometimes you, you make something and you, you think that it's this new idea and then you find a sketchbook from 10 years ago and find that, Oh no, I drew that shape 10 years ago, that that's something that's just been sort of cooking or circulating, you know, in the, in your memory or, you know, wherever that creative part of your brain is that, and then all of a sudden it gets fit out, you know, it really is fun to look back through old sketchbooks. Cause I mm -hmm. keep all of mine too. And the most annoying thing is I find out I change styles of sketchbook, not my sketching, but I'll go from like one brand to the another. But looking back, like I'll look at, you know, something 10 years ago and it's just like, oh, yeah, that was in my head the whole time. And I just I'm revisiting it. <laughs> totally. You think you think that's some new idea and you realize, oh, no, I did that. Either I did that before or I wrote I drew it like a long time ago or um, I mean, I'm not like a very di super disciplined about my sketching practice. There's some artists who like always carry a sketchbook with them. And I'm definitely not that. But I, I tried to be more consciously take make that step so that it's not you know when I'm not able to get into the studio for a while I don't feel like I'm starting from scratch so so I think I you know I think there's definitely certain types of shapes that I'm attracted to I mean things in nature or things that are inspired by nature and I now that we have cell phones you know I use my cell phone as kind of a like a lazy person sketchbook in a way <laughs> to sort of record things that catch my eye or things that are interesting and capture them do you use it to capture stuff and then you'll go sketch it or do you just take a picture and then that's it? I think I try to go, I don't always sketch it right away, but I think when yeah, I'm, yeah. the things that I'm attracted to that in my surroundings or that catch my eye are shapes that then tend to appear in my, my drawings of things. So um, I did include, you know, some Im images from my sketchbook. And I think like a lot of artists like to look at a, a big blank white page of paper is sort of terrifying that <laughs> you're like, where do I start? So I, my sketching is a little bit more like doodling, I guess is probably a better term for it that I tend to start like in the middle and then just sort of fill the page with little, little images of stuff. So if one is pretty crappy, it doesn't matter that much because there's a whole bunch of other stuff around it that will distract you. So rather than having one big image that has to be good, you know, the sketchbook, I mean, a lot of, especially a lot of woodworkers aren't particularly skilled sketchers. And they get very self-conscious about their sketchbook. But, you know, I look at my scribblings as just being the sort of my own diary. Uh, you know, it, it's I'm not trying to uh, I'm, I'm not trying to reach anybody else's standards of what they think a great sketch. Sketch. Yeah. Or, or, 
or win any awards. You just want your ideas down. Right. And and I will give you some pushback about uh, using your cell phone as a lazy person sketchbook, because <laughs> I think any tool you use that helps you create a visual library. I mean, I remember my first instructors encouraging us to cut pictures out of magazines and post them into sketchbooks mm-hmm. is, is, you know, hell, I'd rather save a tree and buy magazines and cut pictures out and paste them into sketchbooks. I, you know, I, I, so I think it's a, a perfectly valid way of building a visual library. You know, I still get magazines like paper magazines, but I tend to just mm-hmm. photograph stuff out of them or like scan it with my phone or something like that to record it. Now we don't have to actually physically remove it from the, from the book the way we once did. Oh, I still cut stuff out. I love cutting stuff out. Oh, you do. I, I do remember doing that in college, though, like or, or xeroxing copies of things and then cutting it out and putting it in my sketchbook. I definitely did that. I still, I've got a good roll. I bought a double roll of uh, double stick tape a, a couple weeks ago, and it's like I'll put stuff in my sketchbook. I'll cut it out of a magazine, or and I love finding magazines and giveaway bins and things uh-huh. at libraries, and then I'll cut stuff out and double stick tape it into my sketchbook, and I find that really fun. <laughs> I, I mean, I think that's what I tell students, though. It's like I, I'm on a, a few graduate committees now, um, mostly metal students and ceramics because we don't have a graduate program in wood here. But some of them, you, you, like I see them really struggling with like that sort of paralysis of like, what do I make? Like there's so much pressure. And and I re- totally remember that from graduate school feeling like floundering, like I don't know what to do. <laughs> I still get that feeling these days. But but just telling them, you know, like how useful it can be with a phone. It's a very little time commitment. You're just noticing things and and capturing them with an image. And then when you go to look at it, you might identify patterns and say, hey, like I, I see this shape here. And then I'm seeing, I noticed just looking through for this that I tend to take a lot of photographs of tools, like um, interesting mm-hmm. shaped axes and blades. And like, I don't think I put those in my, in my, the images I gave you guys, but um, in my folder on my computer, I, there's like a whole section on tools and shapes of tools. And then that's something that when you're looking at it for the first time, you wouldn't think like, oh, this is something I've done 10 times before. But then you, when you look at all the images, you're like, oh gosh, I've done that 10 times before. So there must be something about that shape. That's like, <laughs> that's important. Yeah. And that's, that's interesting how shapes resonate with us. So then is the big step, which is how to pick one of those images and start to flesh it out and think of it as something that you're actually going to make. And and how does that process work for you? Because we all struggle with that. We, we have all these images, yet we have to choose something to make. And that that's a struggle. It's such a good struggle to have, though, you know, <laughs> to be to be like, oh, which which of my thousands of shapes I, I actually I find it more of an existential struggle for me because I have to have a faith enough in that idea that I'm going to invest time and money in it. To me, it's scary. So how does that work for you? I think it's definitely scary. And I, I think, you know, especially with the nature of what we do with woodworking, that there's some time commitment. And if you sort of choose a path to go down and then halfway down it, you realize, oh, this idea really sucks. Like I'm going the wrong way. Then you're like, oh, shit, I've lost yeah. all this time. Like, <laughs> so it's it's a little bit of, you know, there's some risk involved. And most of the later in career woodworkers that I've talked to about this, like I, I think Wendy Mariama actually said, you know, you have to produce a lot of stuff, like, and out of 10 things you make, there might be one of them that's, that's good, which can be a little bit overwhelming or sort of disheartening, you know, when you're starting out. But um, I think just knowing that, okay, I'm going to make a bunch of stuff and, and eventually I'll get better and, and there'll be a higher percentage of good stuff in the total volume that I'm making. But so, yeah, I don't know, as far as like the germination of an idea, like I'm, I'm pretty lucky, I think having, a full-time job as an educator in some ways that it um, kind of frees me up to just make whatever I feel like making, <laughs> you know what? I don't have to worry about, is it going to sell? Is, are people going to like this? Does it like, does it, is it on trend or, or whatever? I think that's the way it's, it's phrased these days. Um, trend, trending. Trending. Yeah. It seems like. I never even knew that was a thing. Did it go viral or. No. Yeah. Yeah. It's on trend. That's my, my 10 year old son who's big into YouTube always says, mom, guess what's on trend right now? You know? <laughs> I'm like, I don't, I don't want to know. He's definitely in the know. 10-year-olds are way smarter than all of us. <laughs> well, he thinks he is, but um, <laughs> anyway. Yeah, they are. Well, it's certainly technologically more in tune. But I will say most of my incredibly unsuccessful and bad ideas have all been because I thought somebody wanted or needed this object. I, I will shoot down the idea of trying to build something on trend as, a, as at least a successful idea so it's 
a successful concept as an artist and maker. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's a poor motivation at best. Well, I think I... I think it is important to 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 ask yourself the question at some point, like why should should this object exist? Like should it exist or should it should it not? And and that's sort of a scary question, I think, as an artist, you know, because I think we all feel sort of compelled to sort of make stuff that you get a little bit addicted to that process of um, sort of creating something. I think you know I had Roseanne Summerson was my main professor in graduate school, and I remember her talking about just sort of I don't know if it's like a dopamine rush that you get at a certain point of making something like maybe when you paint it or you put the finish on it or you see it's starting to resemble that idea that you had and that that sort of um, reaction that you have when you see the piece at that point is like what makes us keep coming back is to try to get that get that rush again like get our fix you know by making stuff and. I think about that because it's a very real thing. Like, you know, at that certain point when you're about like 90% done with making something where it really looks like, like you want it like close to what you want the final thing to look like. It's actually coming together. It's actually working. Yeah. Yeah. Or you see, you know, on like social media, so many videos of people like wiping the oil onto the fancy wood tabletop, those kind of drive me nuts, but like, or like oiling Uh, the cutting board, you know, those, those videos that they're, there's too many of them, but there, there's 10,000 of them. And it's like, yeah, yeah, we won't. <laughs> but to the fact of, you know, what uh, Roseanne was saying and not building things to trend. I remember the first time I built a piece that like knocked my own socks off. I mean, and the dopamine rush or the chemical rush was amazing. It was like, not only did this piece turn out exactly as I wanted to it, I wanted it to. I loved it. And um, it was a it's a great feeling. And if there's something to shoot for in a piece, it's to knock your own socks off. Well, because I guarantee if you knock your own socks off, you're going to knock other people's socks off, too. And I think that's that's part of it. Yeah. I mean, I'm 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 in my work and I know, Eric, you, too. I mean, you're not searching for other people's validation. I mean, I'm just, I'm just trying to make the kind of stuff that Rob makes. Yeah. You know, although I've got very, (laughs) my, my, um, standards are very high. So sometimes I don't make what I want to make all the time or up to that, that standard. Um, but man, when you do and it clicks, oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, that's 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 something else. That's why we do what we do. And and, and as to being a maker, I think it's a disease, personally. <laughs> I mean, it's an addiction or a disease, and addictions are diseases. I mean, that's why we do it. We do it because we have to make things. And you know, I guess when we were talking with um, B.A. Harrington, you know, she, she brought up the same topic of, you know, you have to think, does this object want to be made, and should it exist in the world? And I don't think you can ask a a diseased addict person, whether they want that next fix or not. I I just don't think that's a fair question to put into the mix. (laughs) uh, I'm sorry. I just have to make stuff. Should it exist? I mean, mean, you you think about it. It's like the stuff that we make. Yeah. Maybe sometimes it's big, but it's all within our own little footprint. Most of it we could keep in our own house if we don't sell it or an extra bedroom or something like that. You know, I think somebody like Wharton Eshrick is a is a, a wonderful example of that disease. Did did he think about this house and all his furniture as as something he was going to sell? No, he thought it was I you know obviously creating his own world. He was creating his own world, much like your dad was creating his own world with the trains. Um, yeah, you sort of you create your own world and you live in it, and uh, hopefully it's a happy place to exist. Um, I think that's part of what all of us do, though, I think is that, you know, you think about your, I already think about the, you know, the stuff that I make, it's like stuff that I think about what I want to live with this thing in my house. Is it something that would make me happy to look at it? And does it capture, you know, thinking of nature and, and shapes in nature that inspire me and, and trying to like capture something about what I like about that shape and, and surrounding myself with it in my home, you know, bringing, I guess, something of nature into my home. And I think, I always have to, you know, as an educator, selling work is, doesn't have to be a huge priority for me. It's, it's, but in some ways when I do sell a piece that that money is more valuable to me than like my regular paycheck, because it's, you know, it sort of validates what, what I do, I suppose, or makes me feel like, oh yeah, I'm still, I don't know. There's still people out there that want my stuff, but, um, 
But then you always have to think, okay, well, if, if it doesn't sell, like, would I want to live with it? Or where is there a spot in my house that I can put it, which is sort of, you well, know. I, I, think that's, I think that's a much more valid question than the question of should it exist? Yeah. So, well, so where will it exist if, if some outside person doesn't take it? But um, but yeah, I, I agree. It is sort of like a disease. And, and in a way, I think of artists as being sort of by nature self-absorbed a little bit because we live in our own heads so much, you know, or, or allow, have shaped our lives around that creative drive that we all have, you know, <laughs> that set, set ourselves up in a way that we can keep doing this. Yeah, I like that you call it a creative drive instead of, instead of you know, ego <laughs> or disease. Creative drivers, I think that's a great way to explain it. To me, that also in, involves the question of vocabulary and how we have, we over time develop our own design vocabulary and how you've incorporated that, how you incorporate that into your thinking process. You know, these shapes and images that seem to be universal in your sketchbook, how that came about and how you use that in developing an idea. So... Um, we've gotten hmm. past the we've gotten past the scary stage of picking an idea, and now we're we've we've developed that idea, and you know, so I just want to elucidate on that for a little bit. I think uh, you know, I guess I start just by doodles, pretty much, and then maybe once I sort of zoom in on one of those doodles to make it a little bit bigger, I might sketch something kind of larger scale. Um, once in a while, I'll do a full scale drawing of something because you know sometimes you have an idea or a shape that looks good when it's really tiny and then you blow it up to full size and you're like, Oh, it looks like something I didn't want it to look like, or it doesn't, you know, that it might just, I don't know that there was a, a mirror that I'm working on right now that I, I ended up making like, I didn't really do a full scale drawing of it, but I made sort of a full scale pattern just out of like thicker paper um, because I wanted the shape to the, of the frame to be symmetrical. And I thought, well, if I'm going to put this like bumpy edge on it, then I need to make a pattern to make sure that it's, it's symmetrical, you know? And then uh, I drew out a shape and then I, I flipped it over and I was like, oh gosh, it looks like a big piece of toast. <laughs> like, and that's not what I wanted, you know? So then I'm thinking, okay, well, what, how can I modify this shape to still sort of get at the energy that I maybe felt in the original sketch and, you know, maybe it needs to be simplified. So I sometimes I'll make a simpler version of something or sometimes I'll make it more complex and then see one of those in the right direction. And sometimes I have to just sort of step away from it for a while too, and just let your brain sort of wander when you're falling asleep or in the shower or whatever, like where you're have, don't have any distractions, you're bored, your mind's able to wander. And then sometimes I'll, I'll find in those times that I sort of settle on idea, an idea and be like, oh, that might be the shape that's going to work or I'll pick some totally different shape that I maybe had abandoned earlier or something like that and, and come back to it. But it's, it's a hard process. I mean, I think, you know, you see there's these things going around the internet of like the cycle of the creative process, how you start out excited about something. And then at some point you're like, this idea is crap. I, I'm crap. I can't do this. And then eventually it comes back around where you're like, Oh, this is good. I can do this. You know, I'm a genius. <laughs> I know. Yeah. And I think we all, you know, sort of experience, I, I feel like I experience that with every object I make, where there's a point where, where you're sort of like teetering on the brink of failure and <laughs> abandoning it. And then you're like, oh, no, this is going to work. I can do this. So but yeah, I think I, you know, for more complex pieces, I might do a full scale drawing or um, I don't know that I've ever made like a real full scale mock up. I know there's some artists that really want to refine that idea, maybe for making a chair or something like that, where it really has to be just right. They'll make prototypes. And I'm usually a little bit too impatient slash lazy in my process where I'm like, I just want to get to the fun stuff. And, uh, you know, maybe that involves a bit more risk, but, um, but usually, you know, I think I always tell my students and most woodworkers will say that so much of what we do is about problem solving. So if something doesn't go quite right, like how can you salvage that idea and, and redirect or either by adding something to it or just, you know, reimagining what it, what it, you thought it should be to what, it seems to want to be or whatever, you know, but it's a, I don't know, it's a tricky process. So yeah, I guess I tend to go from sketches, then sometimes full scale patterns, some depending on the design, you know, sometimes I care a lot about what wood I'm selecting. So, you know, sometimes there'll be a certain piece of wood that and, and I'll say, Oh, that would make a good blah, 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 or whatever. And, and I'll, an idea will start to formulate around that. But I try not to, you hear a lot of woodworkers say, like, or students, I suppose I hear say like, oh, I just let the wood speak to me. It just told me what it wanted to be. And I, that, that kind of drives me crazy. <laughs> it sounds a little too 
That means they read Soul of a Tree. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, so I suppose there is some hint of truth to that, that idea too, though, that sometimes you do look at a piece of wood and get an idea from it. But yeah, but if every woodworker in the world navigates a project like that, we're all just going to be automatons. Mm -hmm. Well, yes. I mean, it also seems like somewhat of a cop out too. Uh, (laughs) But a a good student cop out. It's the student cop out version of the dog, dog ate my homework. Yep. It's part of the learning curve. We all go through, you know, I said it at one point too. And then, but then you start to dig in and you do make your sketchbook and you find your, your, your groove for lack of a better term. And then that's your own soul, mm-hmm. right? You know, speaking out through the wood. And um, do you tend to model things or do you tend to, uh, a la what you witnessed in Wendell Castle studio? Well, I think, I mean, he uses some kind of architectural foam and like shapes the, you know, the scale model out of it. And he even, um, we were there when, one time when we were there, he was have about to have a solo show in New York city. I think at the museum of art and design, it was like a solo retrospective mm-hmm. and he had little models of all the pieces and even had like silhouettes of figures of, you know, people size figures that were like all to scale, you know, and how they would navigate the space and what the layout of the show would be. And, Oh, wow. But yeah, I no, I don't do anything like that. But at the same time, I see the value in it and like seeing, you know, making a scale model, especially if it's a shape, you know, that's kind of complex. What he did with the stack laminated pieces to be able to see the object, how it exists in space and to be able to rotate it and see it from different orientations. There's definitely a lot of value in that process. So I have made models like sometimes out of um, just like insulation foam, kind of quick and dirty stuff that you can just cut out on mm-hmm. the bandsaw. But sometimes I'll just <laughs> sort of wing it, <laughs> to be honest, when I'm making something that's heavily shaped, like I'll look at it as I'll sort of sketch it out, you know, on the piece from two different dimensions. Like, say, for example, if I'm making a spoon, I'll do like a top view and then on the side of the piece, do the side view. And then but then uh, there's always this sort of back and forth conversation as you're cutting it out and, and shaping it that the tool does something a little differently or you do. Well, don't blame it on the tools, I suppose, but um. Where the, the idea might evolve a little bit as your, what is it, a poor carpenter blames his tools. But, um, you know, just the, just sort of that the conversation as you're working on a piece, internal conversation, I suppose, is what I'm trying to get at. But where you're like, oh, this is working, I should do more, push it more in this direction, or it needs a little bit of something here. So I think in many aspects of my life, I'm kind of like a, a wing it kind of person. You know, I'm, I'm married to a scientist. Who's, he's a geologist and um, he's very much into planning and making lists and having like structure as far as how things are, are laid out. And I try to teach that way to my students to be organized and have a plan and measure and be precise, but at the same time, allow a little bit of wiggle room because things are always, you know, you have to be able to adjust and, and to not just totally melt down if things, something doesn't go right, or if you screw something up or whatever. So that that's part of the process. Yeah, to that, I mean, that's problem solving. Mm -hmm. I mean, things rarely go to plan. But as a nerdy aside, even though we seldom get into this in why make, that material you were alluding to is sign maker's foam. Oh, yeah. And I taught a class in, uh, I taught a class in just uh, figure carving. And we didn't have many tools. And I fell upon this stuff, which carves wonderfully with a simple rasp. It holds a beautiful line. And it's incredibly expensive. Like a three inch <laughs> thick sheet of it is a thousand dollars, a four by eight sheet. Of it. So I went to a sign shop and got little scrap. I, it's a wonderful tool for working out ideas. It's a little messy, but you can sand it. You can shape it so much better than you can just shape commercial uh, foam from uh, from a building supply place. Yeah. So it's like I, I feel like I I don't always practice what I preach as far as like how I how I start students. You know, so much of my um artistic practices intertwined with my teaching like a lot of other pieces that I make start out as a demo on a specific skill and then I'll think like oh well why waste good joinery you know I might as well finish it up and make something out of it so like I as a result have a lot of small cabinets that have sliding dovetails in them and I I don't know I think that, that I often you know the good thing about being a teacher too is that I get pushed you know, that has made me much better at, at sketching because a lot of times students will have an idea that they can't really articulate on paper. And then I have to 
interpret what they're telling me and draw it for them. And they're like, Oh, yeah, 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 that looks just like what I wanted, you know. <laughs> and so that, you know, some days I feel like I'm doing that every day, all day, like the whole week, I'm just sketching, which is great, because I think it has really made me a better at drawing like in 3d and to draw things from perspective. And just to me, that's, that's a useful skill to be able to, to communicate an idea. One of the interesting things too, about sketching in this sort of early stage of a process is to free yourself and try and, and sketch an idea that you don't necessarily know how to build. Mm-hmm. And in my limited teaching experience, I found that people tend to base their ideas on what they know how to do versus what they don't know how to do. So a box form is something easy to build. So I know how to make a box. So I'm going to start with a box. It's starting with an organic shape, which I don't know how to build. And I I just think that's an, it's an interesting twist to start with something you don't know how to do and not necessarily build a piece on a process or a technique. Just build it on the concept of, I drew this, I'm going to figure it out. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's definitely some of my work that comes from from that direction. I would say that the pieces that start as a demo in class, I'm definitely not. Those are definitely skills that I'm very comfortable with. <laughs> so in a way, that's probably a limiting, a limiting factor. But, you know, sometimes I'll create the box and then I'll think, okay, what can I do with the lid or the handle or the door? Or like I've, you know, made a lot of small cabinets that have where I'm treating, it's like a frame and panel door, but the panel becomes sort of like a painting or, or a construction of an image somehow. There's a piece that is, it's like sea swell cabinet. I think sometimes the name changes when I, <laughs> like, depending on when I look at the piece, I forget like, what was it named again? Oh yeah, something like this. But, but where I'm using like the little panel and the, the back of the, of the um, cabinet, you know, kind of cut these strips of wood that sort of puzzle piece together and was trying to create a little bit of depth and space by using shading and to suggest like waves kind of recessing in the ocean or something like that. Or anyway, so I feel like that, that is, I suppose where I'm, I'm allowing the creative part to happen. It's maybe not pushing me technically like skill wise so much, but just keeping it simple, but trying to push an idea or a a feeling or to capture some, some moment, I suppose, that was inspiring to me to bring some of that into my work. And I think like the 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 inspiration of nature in my work, like I'm, I've been trying to think more about like, well, what is it? You know, is there like part of, is there a bit of environmentalism in there, you know, or wanting to protect these these natural places or to inspire people to go see them in person themselves? Or I, I don't know, sometimes that, that the idea of what my work is about seems to to still be evolving, I think. I mean, probably as it should be. Yeah, yeah. But I guess suppose that that's always the case with everyone. So it's interesting that you're asking yourself, like, huh, because uh, obviously those are things that you care about, mm-hmm. making people more aware of the environment and what we're doing to it. So yeah, that is what's coming out in your work, even though that may not be directly what people gather from seeing it. That's what you're trying to to get across. Sometimes stuff just doesn't have to be obvious. That's between you and the piece. What other people gather from it, yeah. They get it, they don't get it, eh, whatever. Mm -hmm. I have questions about pieces that I made 10, 12, 15 years ago that I know where my head was when I was making it, but it was like, how do I feel about it now? Or what is it doing to me now? Mm -hmm. To me, that's some of the beauty of, you know, making stuff from our heart and souls like we do. Mm -hmm. I think one of the hardest things is is having to write an artist statement. (laughs) And I, I try to avoid it at all costs. Like, it's terrible. I'm so bad at writing artist statements. Art speak is a language of itself. And I've often thought that we make a piece with sort of an internal intention of what we want it to be, but we have no idea what it is. And then somebody asks us what it is, and we create this artifice that, oh, this is about this. And artist statements are, well, I'm, you know, I'm influenced by the world around me and this and this and that. And it's only partially true. I mean, most of it's just sort of made up in the process of writing it. I mean, exactly, Eric. I don't start a piece with a narrative usually. You know, it's like, I'm going to make a piece about this and let's see what happens. But it's hard to, you know, that I feel like I keep hearing the term imposter syndrome a lot lately. I don't know if that was just sort of clarified as to what it is, but like, maybe every, maybe it's just me. I don't know. But I think a lot of artists, you write an artist statement and you're like, God, are people going to buy this? Like, is it, are they going to believe me that that is what it's really about? Or like, but then I, I mean, I think, you know, being forced to put down on paper, like what you're thinking about is it's a painful process, but it's, it's good at the same time, you know, even if it's just 
sort of like an elevator pitch kind of of what your work is about. But that's how I look at it, too. It's like, can I say this in 15 seconds? That's what I got to do for the elevator elevator speech. Maybe it was Jenna Goldberg said this. If not, we'll attribute it to her anyways. (laughs) But basically, artist statements are like writing about the making of sausage. I mean, you really just don't want to see it. (laughs) And personally, I that think sounds like something she would say. I think. <laughs> I think trying to find your intent in a piece, but trying to write a paragraph about what your intent is as a maker. I've read some good ones, but for the most part, it's a bunch of visual artists speaking in a verbal bullshit language that is just so transparently bad. I mean, my artist statement sucks. <laughs> uh, I'll admit it. Uh, I've been forced to write it and rewrite it over the years, and it doesn't get better. It gets worse. Oh, I think I'm actually getting better at mine because I'm at least understanding what I want to. That's part of your delusion, Rob. You think it's getting better. It's really getting worse. No, it's not. Well, maybe I'm getting better at writing it. (laughs) Maybe it's not actually getting better, but I don't know. New idea. Well, uh, the uh, the artist statement creation app, where uh, it's a canned artist statement, but it's like, you know, like yeah. the Mad Libs. I am a great, insert verb, creative like artist. Like fill in the blanks, yeah. I often think about flowers and trees. <laughs> I know, but then it's like, that. yeah, starting to justify, like, well, what is it about them? And I don't know. I mean, I, I talk to students a lot about, like, uh, just you know, in this assembly of, of images, whether it's sketches or photographs or whatever, like to try to recognize, like, what are the patterns in it? You know, I think this process of, of prepping for this with talking with you guys, like it made me look at my work and organize it in a way that I hadn't done before, you know, by saying like, okay, well, these are the, the, the pieces that are inspired by this thing. These are the group of pieces inspired by this thing. And, you know, sort of organizing it into columns um, was something that I hadn't done before. So, well, so we've committed to an idea and we're starting to make it. And for me, there's a couple of, of paths to go down. One, you're committed and you're committed to a complete idea, as in you've sketched out as many of the variables as possible. There's a few decisions left to be made. Or B, you just have the vaguest idea, but you just mm-hmm. jump in. And which school would you find yourself in? Probably the vague idea and just jump in. And then, but I do sometimes I'll actually draw it on the piece, you know, and then like look at it and say, okay, if I'm going to cut this out, is it going to work? And how does it look from a few different angles? So sometimes it's like literally putting it on the piece because I don't work in a way where I'm ever really planning to make multiples of something. And there's sometimes a basic framework will start out the same, but then I'll make different, different shape versions of it. But as far as that particular shape, like usually it's kind of a one-time thing. So I'm not, not planning to repeat it. (laughs) So that's sort of nice. And that, that, you know, it doesn't require that much planning or or commitment, but if it doesn't work that one time, it's not the end of the world. At this point, you've figured out like, okay, these are the the processes or the techniques that I'm going to use. Kind of got your head wrapped around that. Please Am I going to put the legs on a lathe or I'm going to do this? Or, mm-hmm. I mean, do you, do you go into a piece like knowing the three processes that you're going to use or do you just kind of shoot from the hip? I think sometimes, yeah. I mean, sometimes I, yeah, like I, I tend to work, I think like you were saying, Eric, with an angle grinder a lot, like for heavy shaping. Um, I've, I've bought other tools that reciprocating carvers and things like that. And I tend to always just go back to the one I started with, which is the angle grinder. But I like that process of, you know, taking a block of wood and just like cutting it off on the bandsaw and then just going at it with a grinder. Though I try to minimize that time. I don't really like like the loud, dusty processes like that. The beauty of the grinder is that it's not a terribly accurate process and things get revealed in the process in terms of well, you know, just because wood is a is a variable density and some part might carve easier than the other, especially if you're not carving something that's super easy to carve. Mm-hmm. And do you let the process sort of, uh, you know, take its natural progression or because once I have the grinder in my hand, I sort of feel like the plan's been thrown out. I have the <laughs> shape. The shape's been defined by whatever I've cut it out on the bandsaw, but actually how it comes together I kind of let the, and this is going to sound kind of hippie and vague, but I kind of let the grinder just decide how it wants to come together. I think, yeah, I think there's some, some truth to that. And then I also think about like the cleanup process after the grinder, like how, how, what tools am I going to use for that? Like, is it going to be a shape that's going to be easy to, to file or sand or, or whatever? Like I, I tend to avoid um, concave 
curves in my in like on the outside edge because they're so hard to like get them get them smooth. Um, one time I made a, a king size bed for someone as a commission like a while ago, and it and I made designed the top rail so that it had this long like concave curve. And oh my god, that took like way longer to to get it fared out or smooth and not lumpy than like anything else in the whole process. So I think I <laughs> experiences like that, you know, tend to you that you acquire these experiences over the years and you're like, Oh, yeah, I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to design something that has that process in it. Unless you've come up with a better solution for for dealing with it. But yeah, I really like like the the process of making something rough, smooth, like I think, like a consistent thing in all of my work is that I, I do use texture in specific applications. But for the most part, things are sort of smooth and round and that there's sort of like a fussiness that I that I like to make up an imperfect surface perfect. <laughs> and that's sort of satisfying for me. So as far as like an, an identifying like signature feature of my work that I, I, I try to make my surfaces as like smooth and perfect, unless it's like intentionally carved with a tool or something like that to have a texture. At this point in the process, you've sort of determined what textures, surfaces and, and maybe perchance color you might use. That's that sort of, you know, those ideas going in. Color is like a whole other can of worms. That's like a <laughs> color is something that I really struggle with. Not actually, I was thinking like one time, a long time ago, Jenna Goldberg put some test on Facebook that was like testing your your eyes ability to to detect these really subtle changes in color. And it was like, I, I passed it with flying colors. Like I had perfect color vision, you know, that I could detect like hues, like in the line, which is the one that's slightly different and I could find it. But like when it comes to, I'm like, well, yeah, I must be pretty good with color. But then when it comes to painting work, it's like, oh, it's just, that feels like such a commitment to me. Like there's a, a group of bandsaw boxes that I made recently. I made like this group of four and I swear to God, they've all four of them were painted like eight different colors before I finally settled on like <laughs> what the final color is. I mean, that's the great thing about milk paint is that if you don't like the color, you just put another one on and it's like, it'll, it'll change it. But on the other hand, so once in a while, I do have, you know, if there's if there's a piece where the theme is water, for example, then I know, okay, that that narrows it down, it's going to be within a certain range of greens and blues and things like that, that that helps me narrow it down. But I'm a big collector of color chips, like paint chips from the hardware store. I don't know if you guys do that at all. But oh, yeah, <laughs> I have like piles of them, or I find them like in my stuck in my wallet or like in my purse or. Um... Oh, better yet, I collect the cheap paint. Samples. Oh, like the little containers. Oh, yeah, which is really garbage paint and is not archival or, you know, they tell you right off that it's really low quality paint and it's just there as a sample. But, you know, a dollar fifty for a, mm -hmm. a little thing of paint. I've, I've used them on many pieces. That way I, you can experiment with like 30 different shades of green. Yeah, it's I don't know. They find paint to be sort of a scary thing, though. Like it's to me, it, it sort of opens up this whole world of possibilities when you when you start adding color. I think a lot of woodworkers, they just stick with like the natural color of the wood, you know, which I, I do in a lot of my work, too. But somehow incorporating color and texture that just it just opens up so many more possibilities with things as far as what direction you can take it or what or, you know, trying to, to make a surface more interesting or to get at whatever your theme is or your source of in inspiration that that um, is a way to sort of help connect the viewer more directly to, to what you're trying to get at, if, if you can even put into words what you're trying to get at. <laughs> and that has a tendency to come at the end of the process, you think, as you're responding to the object and whether it, it met your objectives and you go, well, I could use a little mm -hmm. more color here. I mean, to me, I tend to think of it as a continual problem solving process in terms of the intent may have been to do this, but when I see the object, I go, well, I need to, I need to problem solve to make it more effective this way or mm -hmm. that way. So, I mean, some people go from the beginning, this piece is going to be red. This is going to, piece is going to be red with natural maple, this and here and here, and, and they have it pretty fleshed out. And I'm just curious again, you know, you tend to respond to the object as it's being built, what, what it needs since you're, you're shooting so, from Yeah, the sometimes. I mean, sometimes going to an, into something, I'll envision it as being a certain color, you know, whether it's green or red or red or whatever. But then sometimes when you get later on in the process, you look at it again and you're like, you know, it might be better if it was this color or something totally different. It's, it's a, it's a weird thing. Um, you know, I suppose like smaller objects, things like bandsaw boxes are probably a great way to get better at using color because it's not a huge time commitment to make them. And you can, you know, paint over them a bunch of times and then like find ways that colors react differently with each other or can take the piece in a different direction. 
but it can be overwhelming. I think when you have too many choices, like I'm, you know, when it comes to like choosing a color to paint a room in my house, oh my God, it takes me forever. (laughs) It's like, if there's too many options, like I get, I get where I just can't, you know, I like those things that you can get at the hardware store where it's like a family of colors that work well together, you know, like I'm like, oh, that, that kind of narrows it down. So there's not so many options. And I'll use those sometimes as a way to, you know, a starting point, I suppose, to when choosing a color to paint a piece. But for example, I have a like a small bookcase that's sitting down in my studio right now that started as a demo and it, it's made out of basswood. So I'm like, oh, if it's basswood, it has to be painted. And but I just can't even decide. Like <laughs> it would take me an hour to paint it, you know, to decide in a color and just get a coat on. But it's like I'm avoiding it because I'm like, I, it hasn't come to me yet. So luckily, I don't have that again that time crunch of having to sell it or make a living off of it. So I can procrastinate for a while. Yeah, colors, colors, scary stuff. And I think often woodworkers, because we're, we're not trained as painters, although in some that are, you know, you think of amazing work like Tommy Simpson, who are very in tuned in color, and it's just amazing what they can do. I interestingly enough, I often think with colors in my head. And then the reality is that color doesn't exist anywhere. And I have no <laughs> idea how to get it. How to mix that color how to mix that color, how to get it. That's why I'll, I'll go to, I'll go to Lowe's and get 10 samples of green and often I'll end up just uh-huh. mixing them all together to try it out <laughs> and mixing them all together or trying to figure out some way to get that color that's in my head in reality, um, with, uh, a general sort of stabbing in the dark kind of approach, yeah. which, uh, somebody much more attuned with color wouldn't necessarily. I wonder do. like if Tommy Simpson, if he has like a color, palette that he tends to work within though i think of like he uses a a mixture of a lot of natural wood next to paint like does he he's not using any like fluorescence or anything like that for example but i mean he has you know sort of a range that he works within that he knows the six or eight go-to colors or whatever Mm -hmm. people tend to work in you know you said you work in milk paint well milk paint has a definite palette i mean there is no pure white in milk paint and there's no real well, the black is pretty pure, but uh, the rest of the colors are definitely very muted tones. So there's a, even mixing them together, you're pretty limited. In what yeah, you though get. they have come out with a bunch of new colors recently. Somebody bought the company and so there's some some brighter, more vibrant colors. And that was like game changer for me. <laughs> so like, oh my gosh, I have more choices oh, really? now. Like, yeah, you should look at their website, but. This is the old yeah, fashioned milk paint company? There's also like a line of paints called like Sweet Pickens milk paint or something that I get confused because they still have the, the old colors, but then they have all these new colors, but there's like two different lines of that. I don't know. It's confusing, but. So in sort of trying to, to wrap this all up, at the, at the end of at the end of every process, I, I think, uh, at the end of building a piece and you're sitting there and you're looking at it, there's a, there's a sort of a self critique process that happens for a lot of us where we sort of judge its success. Is it math? Is it, I don't even know why I use that term. I never used that term before. Uh, I look at it and basically I have it, you know, it's one to 10, 10 knocking my socks off. One is it accomplished the goals. Um, it's okay. Three is eh. I'm not thrilled with it. I'm not keeping it. Um, and then of course there's the whole other range, but I definitely, and, and then of course, like the, the 10 pieces, I'll, I do make the evaluation. I want this to be in my home. I don't particularly want to sell this piece or, oh, this piece, <laughs> I think naively, oh, this piece will really sell. <laughs> and then it ends up in your home anyways. <laughs> I mean, and then there's that piece that I just sort of feel emotionally distraught over and is immediately going in the wood stove. <laughs> I think the Furniture Society has that auction going on right now. And there's Gary Knox Bennett has this, the, the um, woodworkers eraser and it's like a giant matchstick. <laughs> it, it's like the shape out of wood, but I was like, it took me a minute. I'm like, Oh, you just light it and throw it in the wood stove. I don't think I've ever felt that bad about something that I've made, but I guess I try to think about like, am I going to feel good about this piece, this thing that I've made being out in the world and scrutinized by whoever happens to cross paths with it. Like, you know, there, there are commissions. I did a couple of commissions when I was a graduate student and I keep thinking like, oh, someday those people are going to call me up. It was like a giant chest of drawers and that they're going to call me up and be like, oh, it totally fell apart. You know, like everything failed on it. You know, <laughs> I think I don't know if everyone else thinks that way about about things that they've made out in the world. I worry about stuff like that, too. Some Sometimes I can't sleep at night, but I try and forget about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think, you know, I, I try to, I guess I have the, the freedom, you know, having a regular paycheck as an educator, but I have the freedom to sort of labor over things a little bit. 
I think the worst critics are probably our peers within the woodworking community. Like the, the scariest thing is like putting a piece of furniture out at the furniture society conference, like in the members gallery thinking like, Oh my gosh, all these people are going to look at it and what are they going to think? And they're going to see all the mistakes. And that's, you know, I think the level that I try the, the level that I try to hold myself to when I'm making something, which doesn't always happen, you know, because <laughs> we all have, we all make mistakes in the things that we create. But, um, but that's sort of like the gold standard, I guess, in my head of thinking like, would, what would other woodworkers or designers think of this thing that I'm making? And how is it going to exist out in the world? Um, what are they going to see in it that I'm not seeing or, you know, that kind of thing as opposed to like the average consumer, you know, that they're just like, wow, it's really pretty wood, you know, that, that they have a different way of looking at things than, than we do, I suppose. Yeah. They don't, they don't micro look at stuff. That I think we have a different awareness of the world or a different, you know, sensitivity to how things look or taste or feel or whatever as artists, I suppose, than the average person does. And wrapping this up, Karen, now what are your final thoughts on the process of making? I'm sort of this, uh, your takeaway from the whole process of sketchbook to committing to an idea, to making it, to allowing for change as the process goes, and then your final looking at it and evaluating it? I think it's something that I'm definitely driven to do, but I find it it's, it's you know, the, the studio, my studio can feel like a safe place, but it can also feel like an intimidating place because it's, you know, where we go to dig deep into our, our creative brain, I suppose, and sort of try to extract these, these ideas that have been percolating in there, you know, and you see little some evidence of them in your sketchbook, but trying to like go from an idea to make it an actual object is scary and hard. And, and I find like, yes, that the studio can be like a, you know, the, the place where the magic happens, but it's also the place where hard choices are made. They're not like, you know, life-changing life or death kind of choices by any means, but they are choices that you're making that are like the, just back to that idea of like, should this object exist and how should it look? And, and, who's going to want it, who's going to want to live with it or look at it. And I don't know, those are, those are tough questions to answer, but I think it's, I'm still driven to make regardless of whether or not these things should exist. So I guess that's kind of my two cents on the process is that I think we're all trying to create objects that are, that we want to live with, that we want to surround ourselves with, that are pleasing to look at, that make us happy and that we capture some aspect of other parts of the world or other parts of our lives that make us happy, that we bring that into our work and in order to give it a form so we can share it with other people. Yeah, and and that seems to be a good place to end it. So this was sort of a unique version of Why Make where we discussed the process of actually making an object with Karen Ertz. So thanks for joining us, Karen, and Why Make? Why Make? Thank you. You can listen to Why Make on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also grab our RSS feed or direct download from our website, why-make.com. This episode is currently brought to you by the Holy Pockets of Rob and Eric. Please help us build our creative funding base at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash why make podcast. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at at why make pod. This episode is recorded on Squadcast and edited by us on Audacity. Thanks for listening.